Our sermon text reading this morning, the proclamation of God's word, is from Judges 21, 23 through 25. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robin. We begin this morning a new series titled, Looking for the True King. And we are going to be looking at the book of 1 Samuel. But you just noticed that we are not beginning this sermon series through 1 Samuel and 1 Samuel. We're actually going to begin with an overview of the judges. Because to understand 1 Samuel and why we need a king, you need to understand all that has happened leading up to this point. So yes, this is a sermon series on 1 Samuel, but today we are going to do a quick overview of Judges that gets us to the point. 1 Samuel is the book where we are going to first meet David. David is the one who is going to become the great king of Israel. He is the man after God's own heart. But if you really want to understand why Israel wants a king so desperately, then you need to happen, need to understand what has happened so far. So, to get, how do we get to this point, entering into 1 Samuel? The, the great act of redemption in the life of Israel up to this point was the Exodus. So, God's people were enslaved by Pharaoh, they were stuck in Egypt. They were slaves to a foreign power. There was no way for them to escape their slavery except for a great work of God's power and grace. So God sent the plagues. The people started to leave. Then they're at the shores of the Red Sea. God parts the water. God's people walk through on dry ground. They are on the other side. God has set the people free through Moses. And yet... Even though Moses was a terrific leader, and even though God did such wonderful things, as soon as the people get onto the other side of the Red Cedar, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, he comes down, and what we see is that the people have already departed from God, and they are worshiping a golden calf. Moses, for all that God did through him, was not ultimately the leader that the people needed, because the people still returned to their sin. So the people walk through the wilderness for 40 years. And again, they are on shores of water. They are on the banks of the stormy Jordan River. God parts the river again. Joshua and the people enter into the promised land. A promised land, it's free, it's happy, it's secure. It's the place where God and his people are going to be together. Just one condition. God says, Israel, I want you to drive out the foreign nations. Because God knows the tendency of his people. God knows that whenever God's people begin to engage the culture, instead of God's people winning out and influencing the culture, what so often happens is that the culture influences us. 
we have a problem with idols. And the people were not faithful, and they did not listen to God, and so they fell back into their sin. For all the good that Joshua did, he was not the ultimate leader that the people needed. Because after their deliverance through Joshua, the people again returned to their sin. This leads us to the book of Judges. So we have the compromised people living in a compromised culture. The question again in Judges is, who is going to set the people free finally? Was it Moses? Was it Aaron? Was it Joshua? The people are still stuck in their sin. The story of Judges is a story of cycles, repeated cycles. Here's the very first cycle. This is in Judges chapter 3, verse 9. The people cry out to God for help. The people are stuck in their sin. They know that they need help. They know they need grace. So the people cry out to God for help. And God gives them their very first judge. His name is Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. This is in Judges chapter 3, verse 10, that Othniel delivers the people. The problem, though, is that Othniel is still just a man. And so he dies. And as soon as Othniel dies, Judges chapter 3, verse 12, the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we see this, this, this cycle that the people cry out, God raises up a leader, the leader dies, the people return to their sin. So the people are stuck again. So you get to Judges chapter 3, verse 15, just a few verses later, they again cry out to God for a second deliverer. This time his name is Ehud. Ehud stabs the king, the people are set free. And yet by the beginning of Judges chapter 4, it reads, and the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the cycle of the book of Judges. You can understand that this cycle in four R's. So the people first repent. That's our first R. The people repent. They're sorry. They cry out to God for help. God hears the cries of his people. So he then, second R, raises up a judge. He raises up a deliverer. This judge will usher in an age of spiritual renewal. That is our third R, spiritual renewal, or you could use the word revival. There is a revival in the land. And yet, as soon as that judge departs, the people, final R, return to their sin. So repent, raised up leader, revival, and yet they always return back to their sin. And so the story of the judges is just this cycle of repentance, revival, renewal, and then a return to sin. Over and over again, this happens in the book. Every single time when it appears that there is finally somebody that can do what nobody has done before for Israel, there's always this cycle of the people returning to their Sin in idolatrous hearts. Barak, Gideon, Samson, great leaders, and yet all fall short. And the second thing, as, as you go through the story of the judges, is that there is this repeated cycle of over and over again of renewal and then a decline, 
But what happens is that the story of Judges progresses, the decline actually gets much worse. And so think of it as, as, as these cycles of renewal that are happening and then return to sin, but every single time it gets darker and darker and darker. That the renewal is shorter. That the return to sin is deeper and even more wicked than before. And so the story of Judges is actually a fairly bleak story. It ends lower than when it started. I mean, I think God's people have been set free. They enter into the promised land. And within one book of the Bible, it's actually significantly worse than when they had started. The very final story in the book of Judges is one of the most grotesque and sinful stories in all the Bible. Now, I'm not going to share all all the details because I recognize that we have little ears and, and children in the service. Some things would not be all that helpful to share, but you can look it up later. It's, it's a story of sexual abuse, perversion, kidnapping, civil war. And what the author of Judges is saying is that by the end of the Judges, it has gotten so bad in Israel that it has basically turned into Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0. Sodom and Gomorrah, that's the city in the Bible that is known as being the most morally depraved city. The the city most deserving of judgment, most corrupt, most disobedient to God, Sodom and Gomorrah. That is now what Israel has once again turned into. And that is the final story in Judges. That's sort of the the final scene before we go into 1 Samuel. You know, most books try to end on a happy note that the prince, the princess, they get married happily ever after. Prince Charming, Cinderella, they get married, or Frodo is able to drop the, the ring into Mount Doom. It's just, just a, a happy ending. That's how we want books to end, but that is not how Judges ends. That, that is not the cultural climate as we head into 1 Samuel. It's a very discouraging end. And you heard it read by Robin, but this is the verse or the, the, the theme that has been repeated throughout Judges, this final line. In those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people looked to Moses with no final solution. The people looked to Joshua and found no final solution. The people then looked to the judges, but there was no final solution for this great problem. All of that is leading up to 1 Samuel. The people need a king. They don't need just a judge. They don't need just a spiritual guru. The people need a king. You see, the the thinking of the verses that, that Robin read was, if there was truly a king, if there was a king after God's own heart, if there was a king that could lead in godliness and wisdom, a king that was also powerful enough to defeat enemies, if there was that type of king then the people would stop doing what is right in their own eyes. Evil would end if there is the right 
kind of king. So Judges ends on a cliffhanger. Is this type of king, this type of deliverer, is he ever going to come? As we go into to 1 Samuel, four points just to, to, to keep in mind as we enter into this new sermon series. It is going to be a long sermon series, so long I don't even know when we are going to end. All we have is through Christmas. So we will be in here for a while. And just as we're going through week by week, hearing the different smaller stories, here are four things that we would encourage you to keep in mind. Number one, the problem of sin and idolatry is deeper than we thought. This is what we learn in Judges. The problem of sin and idolatry is much deeper than we thought. You know, it's, it's, it's very easy for us to look back on Israel and judge them for how quick they are to leave God, to judge them for how quick they are to doubt. You might say, well, Israel, how, how are you so dumb? I mean, you just, you, you, you saw the plagues, you saw the Red Sea, you saw the, the Jordan River open so you could walk through, and then yet, just it seems like overnight, you return to a golden calf. See, it's very easy for us to have a judgmental spirit towards other people, but what Judges teaches us is that we actually ought to do some self-introspection of our own. That we need to recognize that we are more like Israel, that we have that same sinful nature, that we are quick to leave God. We have seen Jesus Christ. We have seen the gospel. We have seen something more significant than the parting of the Red Sea. And yet, we share in the same basic problem of just returning to our idols. We have an idol problem. And idols, but Judges teaches us, idols are, are, are so deep and so stubborn that left on our own, we cannot shake it. From John Calvin, he writes, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Men have, in almost all ages since the world began, set up imaginary idols before their eyes to take the place of God. And that's not just an Israel problem, that's a humanity problem. The humanity's most basic problem is that our hearts are factories, and you can watch idols. In the same way that you could go to River Rouge, you can watch a, a Ford assembly line crank out an F-150 every single minute. So does our heart as a factory crank out counterfeit gods. You know, an, an, an idol could be a golden calf or it could be a, a little Buddha statue. But what we should understand is that idols are not just religious statues, but an idol is the position of your heart that looks to something besides God for peace, power, and purpose. Whatever you are leaning into for peace, power, and purpose, that is the idol of your heart. That is a counterfeit God. That you, like Israel, are not turning to God, but are turning somewhere else. So when it's been an especially stressful, long day, or you have tight finances, or you have conflict in your marriage, where do you turn to for help? Do you turn first 
to God? Or do you turn to self-help and alcohol? Because if you, if you turn first to those other items, then that means that is your functional God. That is your idol. When your world seems especially bleak, where do you turn for power and help? Many turn first to politics, or many turn to, to, to science or medicine. Where do you turn first when you need power in your life? Because if you turn somewhere besides God first, and that is the functional idol of your heart. That is the idol of the factory of your heart that has been produced. What gives you the greatest sense of happiness and purpose in your life? Is it college football? Is it a secure retirement account? Is it your ability to climb the corporate ladder? See, if you are finding ultimate purpose, value, hope, joy in those types of things over God means you have an idol problem. Just because you do not have a golden calf above your fireplace does not mean that you do not have an idol problem. You see, the stubbornness of our heart, the sinfulness of our heart causes us to go to a million other places before God himself. First, humanity is made for worship. We're, we're made for God. We are created, men and women in God's image, we are created to, to see God and, and, and to know God and to experience God, to know His grace, to know His love, to know it in such deep and profound ways that we're happy with hearts of gratitude to obey Him, to give our whole lives to Him. That is what we are made for. And yet the very second that Eve ate that apple... The desires of our heart got all twisted and corrupt. So we're made for this great God, and yet because of the curse, we turn to cheap, counterfeit gods. We turn to our job. We turn to our, our retirement account. We turn to college football. We turn to science. We turn to self-help. All those things have the promise of God, and because we are made for God, there's something in us that's drawn to Him, but what we need to understand is that they are not, in fact, God. We have an idol problem, every single one of us. We are made for God, and yet we turn to cheap counterfeits. As the hymn so famously states, I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I am prone to leave the God, our, God I love. That's the deepest problem in the world. That is the deepest problem of sin, that we are made for God and yet we are turning for other places. And what we saw through Moses and Joshua and especially in the judges is that the problem of idolatry is so deep that we need more than just a gifted leader to set us free. We are going to need a massive work of grace. That leads to point number two. Because we have this great problem, we are going to need a great king. And so this is where the book of Judges leaves us. The book of Judges leaves us at the end, teaching us that we need a king. Now we're Americans, or at least most of us here this morning are Americans, and so that's, that's not language that we typically use. We, we had this thing called the Revolutionary War, and we got rid of George. We, we prefer the idea of presidents that are elected by people 
But more than just political philosophy and just the, the, the civil realm, take that away. The, the, the idea of, of kingship, whether you are American or not, the idea of kingship in, in Western culture is not an idea that most people are drawn to today. Because when we think of kings and queens, we think of imperialism or colonialism. We think of powerful empires that come into a new land that force native people to do things against their own will. And so we, we, just, we, just, we have some baggage. Do I really want a king in my life? But just because there have been bad kings and there have been bad queens, it doesn't mean the concept itself is wrong. See, we don't like the idea of kings because it serves up all sorts of bad images. But what if there was a good king? Think of a, a good king that's strong and mighty and powerful and is able to destroy all the enemies of life. And yet, at the very same time, it's not self-aggrandizing, it's not in it for himself, but he's a good king that serves the people. Full path that provides leadership, that provides a hopeful path forward, prosperity. A good king is not self-promoting, but self-sacrificing. So at the end of Judges, we're looking for that type of king, and that's the kind of king that you need in your life. You need to be led out of your sin. You need to be led into paths of righteousness. And the only way that you are going to be led is if there is a good king that is able to do it for you. The king that we are after is not a colonialist that's just trying to suppress you and force his will upon you. No, he's a good king that has your best interest at heart that is willing to lead you into better paths. Point number three, mankind does not have the ability to raise up the king that we truly need. So in the judges, there are these leaders that are raised up. These leaders are effective for a season, but there is no leader, no judge, that is ultimately able to do what Israel really needs done. After every single leader, the people are right back in the same position, idolatry and sin. Because the problem of all the various judges is that they have the exact same weakness that the people had. For all their gifts and for all their strengths, the judges are men just like everyone else. They share in the same fallen nature that all of humanity shares in. Barak backed away from his leadership, and he forced Deborah to do what he was called to do. He abdicated his role. Gideon was a doubter of God. Samson was a womanizer. Now, Judges does teach us that God can use fallen men and women. It's the story of the, of the church. Martin Luther has famously said, God can use a crooked stick to make a straight line. That means God can use people like us. God can use you in your campus Bible study or shepherding your kids or sharing your faith with your coworker. God likes to use sinful people. So that's, that's clear in Judges. But only to a point. There's a point at which that stops. Because at some point, we need more than just a man 
to set us free. We need a different type of king. So at the end of Judges, we realize that we do need a king who is like us, a king that represents the people, a king that has our best interest at heart, a king that is flesh and blood, a true human, a king that has entered into life. We need that kind of king. But what we also realize at the end of Judges is that we need a king who is completely different than us. A king that can represent us so that he can lead us forward. But we also need a king that can do things that only God can do. We need a king that cannot just overcome a nation, but can overcome the greater enemies of life. Sin, death, idolatry. We need a king that can overcome the bondage of our hearts. That we are stuck in sin. That idols are our tendency. We need a king that can set us free in those ways. We need a king who is like us, but is also like God. Now, at, at the end of Judges, you're, you're, you're a little depressed because Judges does not actually give us any answers. Judges just says, you're all living in Sodom and Gomorrah. You have no hope. There is no king. The end. That is how the book ends. There was no king in Israel, and as a result of there not being a king, everyone is doing what is right in his or her own eyes. So that's setting the stage for 1 Samuel, which is the fourth and final point, that God does, in fact, provide the king that we need. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, it looks as though Saul might be this king, that he might be the man. Saul, he starts very strong, and he ends very poorly. <laughs> and then, of course, later in 1 Samuel, we will get to meet David. David, who will go on to become the greatest king in the history of Israel. It will be through the leadership of King David that Israel will grow to heights never thought possible. David was a man after God's own heart. David led with wisdom and bravery. David had God's own blessing. David, early on in his life, so famously took a rock out of the riverbed, puts it in a slingshot, spins it around, takes down Goliath and the Philistines. David is able to expand the borders of Israel. David has established Jerusalem, the capital city, to be this great city, not just in the Middle East, but one of the great cities in the history of the world. David, writer of numerous psalms. David's son will be the one that builds the temple. David is able to take Israel in terms of politics, but also in terms of just religious renewal to heights that have never been seen before. And yet... It's going to be me ruining the whole sermon series on the first morning. And yet, King David is still not able to do what we ultimately need. You see, King David has the same problem as you and I. The same problem of Joshua, the same problems of Gideon and Moses. That David was too much like us. He shared in our nature. And so for all the good that God would do through David, David committed adultery, and then he lies, and then he murders, 
to have it covered up. David, for all the good that God did through him, David died. And after his death, the people returned to, and eventually God's people are sent into exile. So the story of great King David that begins in 1 Samuel, the hero of the people, is essentially the same four R's that we saw in the Judges. It is a renewal, it is a revival, but at the very end of the story, we are stuck in the exact same place, stuck with our idols, stuck in our sin, in bondage. So here's the guiding principle we want you to have as we begin this new sermon series in 1 Samuel. We want you to see David not as the final and ultimate king, just as the one that is leading the way towards the real king that we need. We want you to see in the shadows of David the substance of Jesus Christ. Because we want you to trust in Christ, not in David. And there's a whole branch of the church that turned the stories of David into religious moralism. Here's how you can be the king of your own life. Here's how you can be like David. Here's how you can get your own rock and take down the giants of your life. And that is not the point. The point of the story is to get you to Jesus in repentance so that you might trust in him, not to give you a promoted, overconfident view of yourself that you can be the great king of your own life. Use David as a model of repentance to get you to Jesus. Now, yes, of course, there are going to be some good things that we can learn about David. We just don't want him to be the final answer because he is still way too much like us, tainted by sin. And we need a king who is different than that. As we come to David, if you think that this will be a series that teaches you how to be great in life, and you have misunderstood the context of the judges, you have misunderstood God's plan for David, and you have misunderstood even the idols of your own heart. The fallenness of the judges, the fallenness of David, the fallenness of your own life ought not to drive you to greatness, but rather to repentance. Ought to bring you to your knees so that you might trust in Jesus Christ alone, the true king that we really need. Unlike Barak, Jesus did not abdicate his leadership. Unlike Gideon, Jesus did not doubt. Unlike Samson, Jesus was not a womanizer. Unlike David, Jesus was the king that never committed adultery, never lied, never murdered. Jesus was the truest man of God's own heart. And so Judges teaches us that we need a king. That's the question that begins 1 Samuel. When will this king come? By the end of 1 and 2 Samuel, what we see is that we actually need a much better king. Judges drives us to look for a king that will defeat not just the Philistines, but actually defeat the power of sin in our hearts. Judges drives us to David asking, will this be the king? And yet as soon as we meet David, we realize we need a much better king. A king who is like us and that he shares in our flesh, but a king who is also unlike us and that he is not tainted by the curse. 
King Jesus. We need King Jesus, the King who lived the life that we can never live, the King who died the death that we deserve to die, the King who overcame the curse and all its effects, the King who is now seated at God's right hand. Judges shows us we need a king. David shows us we need a better king, that we need Jesus. So that's going to be the aim for this upcoming sermon series. Each Sunday morning, we are going to go story by story through 1 Samuel. And we will look at the immediate text in front of us. And so we will talk about Hannah. We'll talk about Eli and his worthless sons. We'll talk about Samuel and Saul and David. We are going to look at each of the stories. But again, this is as we study the small stories, keep the larger narrative in mind. Understand the scope of the gospel. Understand that 1 Samuel is one little book in this much larger book starting from the garden, ending in Revelations, that centers on Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the larger story. So as we study the narrow story, keep the big story in mind. That is ultimately a story that gets us not to King David, but to King Jesus. It is King Jesus that we need. Jesus is the king that we are seeking, and he is the king that we so desperately need. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would bless this upcoming sermon series through 1 Samuel. There's going to be a lot to talk about, infertility and parenting and discipline and kings and prophets and all sorts of things. And I pray that in each one of those that you would give us a helpful word. But we do pray that you give us the right perspective. That as we study the smaller stories that you would help us every single week to come back to the big story. The story of Jesus Christ who lived and died, rose from the grave, is now seated at your right hand. Help us to see Jesus in the shadows of 1 Samuel. It's in his name we pray. Amen.